And then there were two, or so it seemed after the Catalan Grand Prix, where we saw plenty of action all the way through. This was a weekend where, once again, we got to see Juan Mir really establish his championship credentials. We saw Fabio Quadraro get back onto top form. We had plenty of incidents involving the Michelin tyres, lots of crashes. The likes of Andrea Davizioso and Valentino Rossi potentially putting a big dent into their championship challenges. For today's Paddock Pass podcast, I'm joined by Neil Morrison and David Emmett. And David, I want to come to you first because I want to ask you about the title contenders, or so it seems, after the Catalan Grand Prix. Mir and Quattararo seem to have established themselves again in the eyes of many. What's your thoughts on what we saw at the weekend? Yeah, I mean, it was it really was a bit of a shake-up in the championship, um, uh, helped by the fact that um, Andre Dovizioso crashed out through no fault of his own. Uh, just, well, I mean, apart from the fact that he, that he qualified so low down and ended up in the middle of the pack and ended up just sort of getting tangled up with... Uh, Joan Zarco um, and uh, Maverick Vinales had a shocker but I'm sure we'll have plenty to talk about Maverick Vinales later on uh, but really I mean Fabio Quartararo needed this win and Juan Mir has just been so incredibly consistent he's been he's uh, had four podiums now uh, he's outscored everyone I think 89 points in the past uh, four or five races so yeah I mean Juan Mir is looking really really like like the real deal yeah, and Neil Morrison I'm going to start the ball rolling with you for the big topic of the weekend obviously as an Irishman you're always interested in the weather but uh, the weather really was the biggest talking point in Catalonia because it all came down to the temperatures uh, yeah it did yeah, yeah. Um, we are not really used to having track temperatures of just above 20 degrees whenever we go to the circuit of Barcelona we normally visit there in June when it's stiflingly hot and humid and track temperatures are in the mid 50s um, and yeah despite it the race being an hour later, uh, local time, I think we got underway at 3 p.m. Um, it was properly chilly out. It was like a proper late autumnal day, even by uh, British standards in, in Barcelona. And it, yes, caused a bit of, uh, well, it influenced the result in some ways. You have to say, probably the most impressive thing for me through the course of the weekend was Simon Crayford trying to be a Northern Irishman saying the weather was Baltic. But uh, David, <laughs> just when you look at the situation that developed over the course of the weekend, we heard quite a bit about the fact that some teams had made a request for a different tyre from Michelin. It wasn't a unanimous decision. But I wanted to ask you about how that decision gets made. Because obviously Michelin make their decision at the start of the year for all the compounds that are going to be used throughout the course of the year. This has been a very unique situation. But what was the situation with tyres? Yeah, I mean, you do have to start off with the fact that Michelin, at the request of the teams, I mean, I think three, four years ago, Michelin were told by the teams that they wanted to know all of the compounds that would be used throughout the year uh, before the start of the year, so they could sort of, uh, so the teams could plan their races around it. Now that's fine uh, until you come to somewhere like Barcelona, where in in September, when it's uh, ten degrees colder than it would be normally. Um, now Michelin had had a look at the uh, had had a look at this and realised that this might happen at Barcelona, and so in Austria they'd gone to the safety commission and said, "Look, we're willing to, we can give you an extra." soft front if you uh, if you prefer and then we'll take one of your medium uh, medium fronts away because we don't think the medium front is going to get is going to get used so much um the way that that works is that everyone has to agree on it it has to be a, uni a unanimous decision amongst the teams and the riders um uh, and it wasn't unanimous because KTM and Honda uh, both felt that they needed a harder front tire uh, more support in braking uh, to be competitive so they turned it down and it meant that uh, uh, basically people were stuck with really one too few soft tyre for most of them and for KTM and Honda with a with a medium tyre that nearly works but again it was really just a little bit too cold for it and so it would it, it became really really tricky and you know we saw this when Paul Espargaro crashed out uh, using the medium front. Yeah, I wanted to come to you, Neil, about the crashes that we saw, because obviously this has been a very strange situation because I've been out here in Catalonia for a couple of weeks and the weather has been really strange because it's been very hot, but there's been a big wind blowing. And even if you've had the air temperature up at 24, 25 degrees, you've had a huge wind chill coming across. At the track this weekend, though, 
the air temperature was down and the wind was up. So it was really the worst situation imaginable for all the riders. Let's look at some of the crashes that we saw. Obviously, the likes of Rossi and Paul Spagaro during the race, both of them crashed at turn two. We saw loads of Moto2 bikes crash at turn two, just with that cold side of the tyre after not being used for so long. Yeah, Paul, I think, crashed at turn one, but Rossi was uh, was at turn two. Obviously, you go in there, I think it's the first time in around 40 seconds that the left-hand side of the tyre is is used. Um, a lot of the riders were saying through Friday and Saturday that the, the wind was such on the start and finish straight that it was actually enough to to cool the tyre the, the down. So by the time you got to turn two, you actually had a very cold front that, you know, a hadn't been used in forty seconds, and B had like extra temperature taken out of it by the wind. Um, so it was it was a treacherous place. We saw, as you said, tons of guys go down in Moto Two free practice. We saw a lot of guys go down in Moto GP and Moto Three free practice. And um, yeah, Rossi, just as he was getting his claws into Quadraro at, at the front, um, Morbidelli had made a mistake. Rossi was trying to go with Quadraro because he knew that in the final laps he probably would have something a little extra for him whenever the tires dropped and yeah it was just uh, one of those things we've seen whenever Rossi's been in that victory fight as of late you know he just he can get himself there but it seems that as it stands he just doesn't have that extra little thing to take him over the line to, to actually win one of these things yeah we saw it in Malaysia a couple of years ago we saw it last year as well I think in Coda whenever he had his real chance and then this was another race that seemed to get away from him David after the race is finished we put up on Twitter that if anyone had any questions that uh, just send them into at Paddock Pass Pod or to any of us directly and uh, one of the questions that came in was from Antonio Ramos and he was asking is there any chance left for Rossi to score a victory before retiring and if so where do you see it happening um yes i think there is but it gets difficult with every race that passes really um i think if i had to bet on which race he would he, he could still win at i would say assen because he's so good around there and it suits the track suits him um he's won there a lot um that means you know like next year going back to a fairly normalish season but will that you know that's not something that's in in anyone's hands um uh, the, the Yamaha is clearly capable of winning. Well, we've saw, you know, we, we've seen it's won now half of the races so far this year. So it's it's clearly a competitive bike and at a track like Aston, I think it would be really, 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 really competitive. And if uh, Valentino Rossi hits his stride, he can win, but it gets more and more difficult every time. And I, I mean, I don't think he's going to score very many more victories, but he might get another one. Yeah, I think it certainly looks like there could be a chance for him to win again. Like Obviously, in Catalonia, it looked like he had that pace to be able to do it. But David, let's talk about a rider that didn't have the pace to do it in Catalonia, Andre Davizioso. It was another weekend where he qualified badly. Looked like he had the probably the race pace to be able to be inside the top seven, but not really challenged for too much more than that. What way did you see his weekend going? And then obviously, that crash at Term 1, he's an unfortunate situation but when you qualify badly you put yourself at the mercy of the midfield riders yeah exactly i mean basically if you're not in the first shall we say uh three rows the first sort of like nine riders the, the risk is always that you go backwards you get caught up in the middle of uh, a lot of people who are jockeying for positions because the thing is if you you could easily lose two three seconds uh, on that first lap just getting stuck behind other riders and once you lose those two three seconds it's almost impossible to get back again um and so the, it's really really tight in there so it, it's always going to happen what happened was um uh, Danilo Petrucci just clipped the back of um um Paul Espargaro's back wheel uh, th that forced him to sit up a little bit uh, Jean Zarco was directly behind Petrucci he was forced to break and sit up um, braked himself uh, uh, down and out and uh, his rear wheel took out the front wheel of Andrea Dovicioso and that was it but like I did, as you say Dovicioso's pace was reasonable not great but reasonable but he could have scored a lot more points than he uh, uh, than he ended up doing if he hadn't been uh, if he hadn't have crashed out uh, but he's still struggling with this rear Michelin he's still struggling with trying to get get his head around the different way of braking which you need to do with this new rear Michelin tyre which doesn't slide as easily so he can't use the front wheel as uh, 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 as hard to stop the bike um, and he has to use the rear 
uh, to stop it a little more sort of uh, smoothly. So it's it, it he, he it's a writing style thing. He keeps on he, he admits that it's a writing style thing, but um, yeah, he needs to he needs to figure it out soon. So uh, and until he does, he's not going to really get anywhere. Yeah, Neil Dovey was quite interesting on Sunday whenever he was talking in terms of what we're seeing in MotoGP now is that whether you're on a Pramac Ducati or a factory Ducati or a satellite Yamaha or a, or a factory Yamaha or, or any of those bikes that everyone's got the same bike available to them. So it's almost as if, and Dovi didn't quite say this, but it's almost as if it's now up to the rider to make that big transition as opposed to in the past, the team would have totally different specs from one team to the other. And the full factory team was obviously much more inclined to make things work for the rider. Yep, exactly. Yep, yep. Um, I mean, you only have to go back four or five years for there to be well, six bikes on the grid that could feasibly win a race, maybe eight bikes um, with uh, Suzuki coming back in in 2015. Uh, but yeah, as Davizio also said, now you've got four Yamahas that are all capable of winning, four Yamahas that have basically uh, locked out uh, the top qualifying at two rounds in the past couple of weeks um, that have been fighting for all the podium places you've got two Suzukis you've got four identical Ducatis on the grid um, you know it's uh, it's a really deep field you've got four identical KTMs it's a very deep field and um, yeah you would have to say that in terms of the level of machinery MotoGP has never been this equal this competitive I think again we saw like 3.5 seconds 3.6 seconds covering the top seven riders across the line around a track like Barcelona where rear tyre wear is so pronounced I mean you do not normally see that uh, very regularly so um, yeah it, uh, we've said it a few times before if you are in any way just a little tiny bit off in racing or in a session then it's uh, it's not going to be it's not going to be good for what would be in the past a bad result you know sixth place you're now looking at outside the top 10 yeah, and I think one of the, and we'll get to it whenever we talk about Maverick, is that one of the biggest issues that he has is that obviously it's very exaggerated whenever you're in that situation where you're losing time at the start and now it's a real snowball effect, costs you an awful lot more compared to in the past. David, um, what was what was your thoughts on it? Uh, there is a real difference. One of the more interesting things about the current era of MotoGP is, um, uh, like Neil was saying, um, the bikes, the, it used to be just a few bikes which were competitive and the factory bikes were much better. What's happened is that as Ducati have provided more support, um, Honda have provided more support, um, that's forced Yamaha to step up as well. It used to be that satellite bikes were properly hobbled. They would be last year's bikes and they'd have a, uh, an engineer looking after them who would make sure that um, you would take sort of, you know, four or five hundred revs uh, out of the engine for, uh, and I'm using massive air quotes here, safety reasons. Um, uh, but now what's happened is everyone is running almost the same spec. Um, the satellite bikes are just, I mean, you know, they're just not as detuned as they used to be. And that's made everything, it's made things so much closer. And, and yeah, we really do have, I don't know, 15, 16 bikes maybe capable of winning. Whether there are 15 or 16 riders capable of winning is is, is a separate question. Um, but I think there really are that many bikes which are properly competitive. Dave, just um, we've got one question in just before we move on from this. It's about Davi in not so much in particular, but one of our listeners, Russell Lee, is asking after the crash for a rider, and he uses Davi as an example, um, after the crash for a rider, how did they make a decision on whether or not to return to the race? Does it come down to just the rider's mental state or do they look for damage or how does that work? Yeah, I mean, but it's a combination, really. It's it's one is the bike still running because if the bike isn't running, then uh, they have to try and start it, and you already lose uh, a lot. Um, depends how far down you are. It depends on how on how bad damaged the bike is. It depends sometimes on the marshals as well because the marshals make an assessment of the bike when when they pick it up, and if it's looking too damaged, they will sort of like push it off. Also, they're trained to sort of like push it away. Uh, uh, away out of the uh, out of the gravel trap, so that can that can take a lot of time out of you. So it really, I think it's uh, a lot of it is also if you uh, sort of slide off and are still attached to the bike, especially on hard standing, then you'll see riders pick it up and get back because they they haven't lost that much time. Um, but by the time Dovi had picked himself up out of the gravel, he was that was you know ten fifteen seconds later, and there you have to wonder whether it is worth continuing. Uh, Neil, just. 
David was mentioning there about the differences that we used to see between satellite bikes and factory bikes. And he was mentioning about the 500 less revs. We saw Fabio with that last year. It was almost like we saw something like that this weekend because it was a huge difference for Franco Morbidelli in terms of top speed compared to what we saw from a lot of other riders. Yep, yep. There was, um, we know that Yamaha has done on speed compared to the other manufacturers, but Morbidelli is on a, a lesser spec than Quadraro, Vinales and Rossi. I mean, Quadraro's bike is more or less same as the factory bikes, whereas Franco is on a, a spec just down from that. And uh, yeah, that was pretty pronounced. Um, you don't usually see or hear Franco describing himself as angry or showing real frustration, but... I think he said um, quite early into that race that uh, he saw just what a, at a disadvantage he was because Quadraro passed him along the front straight as if he was standing still. Um, and he was having to ride absolutely on the limit in the braking areas to try and keep up with them in the braking zones. Um, and that eventually paid because he, uh, yeah, he made a, a mis costly mistake at turn two, uh, sorry, turn one, um, ran off, lost around two seconds. And um, yeah, basically burnt up his uh, burnt up his rear tire uh, which meant he had very little left whenever the Suzukis eventually came towards him uh, at the end so uh, yeah I think he uh, he said that he, he recognized quite early it was going to be a real difficult task to win that race whenever he had that uh, top speed disadvantage because he was around I think six or seven k's per hour slower than Quadraro and uh, you know a lot more than yeah, the six or seven obviously. miles an hour slower than a lot of the other bikes then than the Ducatis, yeah Dave, we had a question from uh, one of our listeners as well, Len Whitman, and he was asking what spec of bike Franco will be on next season. Um, uh, Simon Crafar interviewed uh, Lynn Jarvis about this uh, during one of the practice sessions over the weekend and uh, Lynn basically said uh, unfortunately he's going to be on the same spec as next year Valentina Rossi has been fa uh, promised the factory spec bike so he's going to get sort of basically the bike which uh, Fabio Quartararo leaves behind and Franco's going to be pretty much on exactly the same bike next year uh, because Yamaha can't really uh, afford to support um, for full factory bikes. Um, now, th th there's not that much difference. Now, Franco Morbidelli is on the slowest bike, but uh, what he was saying, he was definitely exaggerating a little bit because I looked up a little, uh, I looked up the uh, the speeds and Franco was comparing himself to um, uh, he was com basically comparing his worst uh, top speeds with everyone else's highest top speeds and then all of a sudden it is a uh, uh, a big difference I was looked I compared the average uh, top speeds uh, uh, over the entire race and Morbidelli is I think 4k uh, slower than Quartararo overall um, and uh, as something like 12 or 15k uh, down on uh, on the Ducatis now that's a lot um, but we know that um, but he's not that far behind the uh, the, the the Yamaha the, the other Yamahas but he is he's still on the slowest bike on the grid and he has to make for up for that all himself and Dave I, I think there was a bombshell in that Valentino Rossi signed for Patronus I didn't hear that mentioned anywhere all weekend <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, they, they didn't want to make a big deal out of it. Uh, you know, it was. Uh, it was. Uh, it was you know, just a little thing, really. Yeah, fine. We won't make a big deal about it either. Then, but we will make a big deal, Neil, about Fabio Quadraro's performance because this was huge for Fabio. Like again, the question after Catalonia comes back to: Are we going to see the dominant displays that we saw in Hereth and also in Catalonia from Fabio, or are we going to see the wild? petulance that we saw at Mizano. what are we going to see going forward yeah yeah exactly um yeah i mean you look back since his last victory uh, at hereth and the boy had a lot to contend with you know he had firstly getting whipped by his teammate in perno which he hadn't really experienced throughout 2019 uh Break near brake failure in austria which is quite a scary thing uh he had a hot-headed slightly petulant crash out of uh, the podium fight, possibly even the victory fight at Mizano 1, and then was deprived of a podium at Mizano 2. So there's lots of things that accumulated together really was causing him some some mental anguish. And then coming into this weekend, uh, the reigning world champion, Mark Marquez, had the had the temerity to have a, a little pop at him and say... It was that great, that wasn't it? It was. He basically said, I'm surprised at Quadraro. You know, what's going on? It's really difficult to know what's going on with him. Like even in his... 
his uh, his best points from last year. He's not really doing that well. Qualifying and free practice, he's not he's not there. And you know, then the, the weekend itself was far from straightforward for him because he had a this kind of mystery pain in his diaphragm, which caused him to caused him to miss the press conference on Thursday. That was still causing him some discomfort on Friday and Saturday. I think Wilco Zielenberg said that he almost thought it was through too much physical exertion. He told Fabio that he needed to just calm down his workout routine just a bit uh he had issues with his brakes at one point during free practice i think he burned a hole in his exhaust in fp4 franco beat him to pole on saturday so i was going into the race day thinking you know like fabio could quite easily quite easily blow his top again and, and maybe uh maybe make a mistake under pressure but to be fair to him i'm not sure if well he basically he was forced to show his hand early because Morbidelli's pace at the start was ferocious and he had to just go at try and go with him to stay there and he, uh, you know, he passed Morbidelli, I think, on lap nine, immediately set the fastest lap. And then, you know, Rossi and Morbidelli made two pretty big mistakes trying to stay up with him. And sure, the Suzuki's almost reeled him in towards the end. But, you know, Fabio was the fastest guy in the world on Sunday. And, uh, you know, for three quarters of that race, he was uh, a class above. Dave, I wanted to ask you actually just about one of the things that Neil brought up there was the sense that there was two different ways you could approach this race. You could be like Fabio, get your head down and try and open a gap, or you could be like the Suzuki's and try and play the long game. But this was a, another race in 2020 where you could take either approach and it really was a case that there's a million different ways to skin a cat because everything seemed to come back towards the norm at the end of the race for most of the field. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it really depended on... Um how how your bike deals with tires really if you think you can get a lot uh, really use the extra grip to go fast in the early laps uh, then you you would basically you know try and build up a, a, um, a build, try and build up a gap and then see if you can defend uh, defend it towards the end um the other alternative is if you couldn't really get the best out of uh, out of the extra grip that you that you had you would have to just hang on at the beginning save your tires and then uh, try and use the grip which you've saved for the end of the race uh, to push on and now a lot of it is sort of bike dependent i think the the ducatis are somewhere in the middle where they can go either way the yamahas really uh, were really able to exploit the extra grip of a new tire and so they all knew right we have one chance which is hammer down from the start and try and get away and see where we end up um but they do did run out of time we saw that with uh, with fabio fabio i think was running 43s by the end of the um uh, 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 by the end of the race, and if he he said himself, you know, if it had gone on for another couple of laps, he would have been running Moto three lap times. Um, the Suzuki's, on the other hand, uh, were really maintaining their pace. They were still doing sort of high forty ones, low forty twos at the end of the race. Uh, and if the race had gone on for another uh, for another lap, then I think Juan Mir definitely would have caught Quartararo catching him and passing him to very separate uh, uh, things very different things um but yeah that was it, it really depended on, on on how you decided you were going to approach the uh, approach the race whether you were going to save your tire whether you were going to um uh, charge from the start and um that's what made it so uh, certainly what made it interesting yeah, it certainly did div and um i thought it was interesting listening to fabio afterwards because he was talking about following Franco in the first eight or nine laps and noticing just how fast the pace was because in FP4, I think they were doing low, low 40s. Mitchell was saying that's the race pace. In FP4, the Yamahas were doing high one-minute 40s and Mitchell was saying that's going to be the race pace. And I think Franco from the off was basically doing low 40s and Fabio said he was noticing this going, this is a stupid pace, this is crazy. But, you know, he didn't have really any option. He had to just go with it. And um, yeah, there was a massive drop off. I mean, we were talking about one, 1.5 seconds drop off with the rear tire in the final six, seven laps. But yeah, as you said, Dave, Quadraro had a three second drop off. So it was pretty gargantuan. And uh, yeah, he saw that checkered flag just in time. Yeah, I mean, for, it, like it was a one four. Uh, I think um, Fabio's fastest lap was a one forty point one, which was just a fraction off of uh, Jorge Lorenzo's lap record around there uh, from two thousand and eighteen. His race lap record. So that shows you just exactly how fast it was. I thought, like race pace, we were talking uh, before me and Neil. Um, uh, you know, we thought you know race pace would be mid to high one forties, but uh, they were there was a lot of forty point twos, forty point threes, forty point four. 
fours. It was a really, really fast race. And Neil, this one's in from Christoph Brun, and he's asking, with Patronus having won four races, with Patronus leading the championship, is signing for the team really a demotion for Valentino Rossi? Uh, demotion in the sense that uh, it's the first time since, what, 2001 that he's going to be riding for a quote-unquote satellite team. Um, however, those numbers that you just threw at me would suggest that it's not really going to make much difference. I would say what will make the difference for Rossi is the fact that he hasn't been able to, or he won't be surrounded by the team that he's handpicked from basically his many, many years in the paddock. We know that from the confirmation of the deal, I think he's taken three people with him from the Monster Energy Factory team to Patronus next year, which is his crew chief, his data technician, and his rider coach. Um, and so there's going to have to be a bit of integration with new faces and stuff like that. But in terms of equipment and in terms of like the setup, I mean, no, you wouldn't say that the Patronus setup is much less professional than the, uh, the factory squad. Um, but uh, just in terms of his status... And, uh, you know, basically, Rossi's been made aware that, you know, you're not basically at the level where you can just dictate everything to us. And I think that was clear from the fact that he was only able to bring three of his guys over. I mean, what's interesting is that uh, in the past, Rossi has changed his crew chief uh, in the search for some, you know, like new inspiration, you know, like uh, some kind of uh, motivation to try to find something else. So this could actually end up also providing new extra motivation for him to 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 go faster to learn new things uh, so it could end up helping but like neil says i mean i think the biggest dent is to rossi's ego in that um uh, he wants all of these things and he's been told no you can't have that we're doing this we're making these decisions so yeah i mean he has to accept that he is now uh, yamaha's number three Rider, perhaps, then you've got to think about Franco Morbidelli. If Franco keeps on going the way that he's going, is Valentino going to be there? You know, he's going to be rider number three and a half uh, uh, is equal to Morbidelli, maybe. Yeah, and that's what's going to be interesting going forward. And certainly, I think it's important to note the importance of consistency. And I say that to both of you just to make sure you don't get rid of me from the podcast. But uh, just looking at uh, the next big topic from the weekend David uh, I think Suzuki is obviously an important one and we got in quite a few questions actually about Suzuki as well so I wanted to ask you the first question David just because it came from Jared Earl a contributor to motomatters.com and uh, Jared was asking why can't Suzuki qualify well yeah, I mean, yeah, yes, uh, happy to answer a, a, a question from um, my excellent world superbike uh, writer um, uh, Jared why can't they qualify? I mean, the, the thing about the Suzuki is the the compromise that they have made with the bike is that it's very good with its tires. I mean, you saw how fast it was at the end of the tire. And the way that it does that is that it can, it's quite gentle on its tires, so it can't load the tires. And the thing is, on a really, on a qualifying lap, what you're trying to do is extract as much grip from the tire as possible uh, uh, over a single lap. Uh, that means forcing load through it. It means, you know, really stressing it through corners. Uh, on, on acceleration and the Suzuki just isn't capable uh, uh, about that on a qualifying that's a real disadvantage but over the race where it really counts you know on lap 23 lap 24 that's where you see the real benefits of the of the Suzuki but they you know it's Danilo Petrucci has always talked about the short blanket where uh, you can't have everything um, and with a short blanket you either have to pull the thing up over your chest and your shoulders to be warm up top but then you get cold feet so then you have to pull it back down again to cool your feet up but then your shoulders get uh, uh, get get cold so this is really what motorcycle design is about it's about compromises and the compromise Suzuki uh, have gone for is they want tire life they want to be fast at the end of the race but it means that they end up qualifying I don't know ninth, 12th 14th Big Neil you're possibly the hairiest man I know do you have this issue with the with the blanket or are you just hairy enough to get away with it extra large blankets is what I say that's what you gotta do when you're over 6 foot uh, Neil just we've got a question as well from Ian Croxford and uh, he's asking is Alex Rins the biggest threat to Juan Mir's title challenge now that he's back to full fitness 
Uh, well, firstly, I don't think he's anywhere near back to full fitness. Um, he was saying that he was having still a great deal of discomfort during the weekend with his right shoulder, um, especially at a uh, very physically demanding track like uh, Circuit of Barcelona where there's all these fast right-handers. And secondly, no, I think uh, he's not because uh, Fabio Cuadraro is. He's ahead in the championship. And uh, David, just looking at uh, what we saw from the Suzuki's, this was a real important step for Suzuki. This was the first time we saw them with two bikes on the podium in nearly 15 years. And it was two bikes coming strong as the race progressed. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this was this was a perfect race for Suzuki. Or it was um, this kind of track, uh, a track which is really, really demanding on tyres, is when the Suzukis are in their element. Um, they were so fast towards the end. They could just sit and wait for everyone else's tyres to, uh, to go off and then charge past. Now, unfortunately, uh, they got stuck behind a Ducati and um, Jack Miller rode superbly. Um, and he was very, very good at keeping the Suzuki's behind him. And you know, if it hadn't been for Jack Miller, then maybe uh, Juan Mir wins his first race um, uh, in Barcelona. But um, yeah, they were they they had the pace at the end of the race when it counted to pass people, to chase people down, to get past them. Um, and they were just you know faster. They were half a second, a second faster than everyone than anyone else by the end. Yeah, and they. Neil, David mentioned at the start of the show about the consistency we've seen from Mir over the last five rounds. And obviously he could easily have won in Austria, like David said, but uh, even without that, he's just really been able to show himself as a very complete rider right from the start of the return to racing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, Yeah, I think his... uh yeah, I mean, we've seen it pretty much throughout the year that um, his racecraft is is pretty much spot on. I love how aggressive he is when he's coming through the field. He's able to he's able to get past people without many many problems. I guess Jack Miller's Ducati was maybe the exception, but um, you know he's a, he's very aggressive when he needs to be, but he's also very smooth when he needs to be as well. Uh, you could see that there were points in the race on Sunday when the Yamahas were far quicker and they were extending their lead during the race but Mir had the presence of mind to know exactly what pace he should have been doing at that point in the race didn't get too excited and try to go with them and make a mistake or burn up his tire he stuck exactly to his game plan and did exactly what he knew he was capable of doing and yes he just fell short in terms of winning the race but he admitted that Cordero was faster than him um and yeah, I mean, he's just, yeah, he's super impressive. He's always there. And I think Le Mans is going to be a really interesting test because last year Suzuki were awful at Le Mans. Reigns, I think, had probably his worst race of the year. Mir crashed, I think, on the out lap, if I remember right. Uh, an issue, you know, he didn't warm up his brakes sufficiently. It was a real embarrassment for a former world champion to go out in that way. Um, however, Le Mans has many heavy braking areas and at the Red Bull ring he showed that he excelled in those kind of braking zones I mean he is superb on the brakes um, and if he can get a decent result at Le Mans I would be really tempted to say that he's going to be maybe even beating Quadraro to the championship yeah I think the one thing is that we know that Fabio's going to have his peaks but he's going to have his troughs whereas with Mir all we've seen is just pretty consistent performances all the way through and Neil I wanted to ask you one other thing as well because obviously Mir and Quattro are the two big talking points but it was pretty cool looking through Twitter the other day Steve Day posted a picture of Mir and Quattro as teammates they also had Andrea Locatelli as Leopard Moto3 teammates it was quite the lineup but I wanted to ask you what was the biggest issue with Mir why did it take so long for him to get his chance to race in world championships um, if you speak to him, it's solely because of money. Um, I think he came into, you, you know, you see a lot of guys coming through the FIM Junior World Championship, Spanish Championship, um, when they're 14, 15 years old, uh, basically means that they're ready to step up to the World Championship by the time they're 16 or 17. I think Mir was a couple of years later than that. Um, and it did take him a couple of years to get noticed and basically get snapped up by the Leopard team in the uh, the FIM Junior World Championship of 2015. And he said that that was solely because of, of money, uh, of financial issues. He didn't have any personal backers. His parents came from a, you know, a decent back, like a fairly humble background, um, not a background that they could have just plowed tens of thousands of, of euros into into his 
into his racing career. Um, so yeah, so it took some time for him to to get the basically for. He couldn't bring any sponsorship to a team, couldn't bring any funding to a team. But I think Christian Lundberg from Leopard Racing saw something in him, in the uh, in the races that he did do in the Spanish Championship. And uh, yeah, it was a few years later than, than than scheduled. But you know, you have to you have to keep in mind that this is Mir's what fifth year in the World Championship. So that's. Two years in Moto three, one year in Moto two, and now this is a second year in Moto GP. I mean, most riders fifth year, most really good riders fifth year in the World Championship, they're doing their rookie season in Moto GP, and Mir in his fifth year is fighting for a World Championship, and that is really quite something. Yeah, and I think that like it's always interesting when you look back at where riders have come through. Because obviously in 2016, Quattararo was still the bright young hope. He was the one that everyone was thinking was going to be the superstar. And Mir turned in and finished top five in the World Championship. Completely outperformed Quattararo as teammates, as a rookie. And then the next year, wins the championship, moves on to Moto2. And within five or six rounds, he's already confirmed as being a factory MotoGP rider. But uh, Dave Neil was just mentioning there that it was money that was the biggest issue for mirror to get his opportunity what what was your issue why did you not get the opportunity uh i think uh, my biggest problem is uh, a complete lack of talent um that was uh that has been a problem which has dogged me throughout my life yeah, well I'll tell you what we're all in the same boat then really but uh one man that isn't in that boat jack miller david he's always been super highly regarded for his talent his teammate Paco Bagnaya as well at Pramac and both of those are really coming good at the moment and uh, obviously we're expecting an announcement from Ducati probably after or just around the same time that this podcast is going to be released so but what's going to be the story for Ducati next year? Uh, yeah I mean it, uh, it, it looks like as we understand it it's going to be Paco Bagnaya and Jack Miller in the factory team it's going to be Joan Zarco and uh, Jorge Martin in the Pramac team and then um, Anaya Bastianini in Avintia, probably alongside Tito Rabat, but it's still not clear what Tito is going to do. Um, he brings uh, both sort of personal money from his uh, from his uh, uh, his father's chain of jewellery stores um, in Spain to the team, but also a sponsor in Hublot, which I think is a uh, a, a manufacturer of watches. Um, David, please be exact on this. We won't be able to get sponsorship from them to get free watches. They're pretty decent. <laughs> I've got a watch, so I'm all right. I don't need one. Um, uh, but uh, certainly um, this is, you know, it's a financial issue. Um, it also it depends because it, it sounds like from what I'm hearing about T. Terry, but he's not very motivated just because he's having such a shocking time of it. He's, he's really struggling to, uh, to be competitive uh, and that can be really really difficult so if he decides to leave or if Ducati decide that they want Luca Marini in there um, uh, then Luca Marini could be alongside uh, could be in Avintia uh, alongside um, Anea Bastianini and Marini deserves it because he's doing so well in in Moto2 he's he's looking like the he's looking like you know a real champion yeah Neil obviously you're the man that spends most of his time looking at Moto2 and Moto3 compared to myself and David. But uh, what we've seen from Marini this year has been just superb. And it's interesting that obviously David's mentioned there that we're expecting the Jorge Martin news to Pramac to be confirmed. And this season, both of those guys have gone in very different directions because coming into the year, big expectation on Jorge Martin. I think everyone was expecting an awful lot more from him than what we've seen so far this year. And for Luca Marini... He's probably exceeded expectations, but obviously there was quite a high bar set. This isn't like it was four years ago, five years ago, where anytime you said Luca Marini, you then had to immediately say Valentino Rossi's half-brother. Now he's Luca Marini, genuine title favourite for Moto2. His race at the weekend was as good as we've seen in Moto2. Yeah, yeah, you would have to say that that's probably Marini's best race that, he, that he'd ridden in Grand Prix. Um, he's just uh, such a calculating figure. Um very thoughtful and yeah I mean he, he basically was in a, a straight fight with Sam Lowe's didn't get too flustered when Lowe's came past stuck with him wasn't sure what to do didn't necessarily have to to beat Lowe's for the for the championship because Bastianini and Bezzecchi is 
principal challenges were behind him. Uh, but, um, you know, just was able to, to like weigh Sam up and saw that he was having a few tired difficulties and just, you know, went for the kill and, uh, you know, acted very, very decisively. And it was one of those performances where you just thought, yeah, he's going to be champion. Um, yeah, it was a champion's ride. And you can see exactly why Ducati would want to get him up there because at the moment, I think, you know, Rabat is just, you know, he's a former world champion. But after that horrific injury that he sustained at Silverstone, you know, he's just never been the same rider since then. And, um, you know, would you replace him with Marini? Absolutely. But as David said, it's it's quite complicated just because of the, the financial issues as well. You definitely get the impression that the team want Rabat to stay because of the financial issues or the financial backing that he brings. However, Ducati are just like, can we can we get rid of him? You know, it does seem that there's a bit of a power play between Raul Romero from Avintia and Ducati, you know, they're they're kind of at odds at that. who to put on that second seat. Yeah, because what we've seen this year is obviously that that team has made a massive step forward, a lot more investment, a lot more personnel from Bologna, and they're reaping the rewards for that with Johan Zarco able to qualify front row. He's been able to give himself decent chances in races this year. And obviously, if you're trying to bring through that next group of talented kids, you want to make sure that they're in the right opportunity. You've got two years with them, whether they're in Pramac or whether they're in the Avintia team and you're able to look at it and just say right if you're not able to get the results within those two years you're probably not going to be good enough to be the factory Ducati rider so we can move on and at this stage Tito Rabat is exactly what everyone knows Tito Rabat to be he was a great Moto2 rider it's not going to translate into MotoGP and they've got the chance to be able to really move things along for them and it definitely looks like that's the way that they're that they're going to move on it David just before we move on to the next topic I just wanted to ask you about Bastianini and him going into MotoGP obviously that's been confirmed or at least it's been said openly that he's going to be there next year but he's done a great job this year to again exceed the expectations that people had for him yeah absolutely I mean he's um uh, he, he made m certainly more of a step than I uh, than I expected um and it's interesting I think we talked about this with Neil um on the pr maybe the previous uh, episode of the Paddock Pass podcast or the one before you know who you're going to take uh, uh, Marini or Bastianini they're two very different riders um Marini is much more developed he's a much more rounded rider um but Bastianini is much more of a raw talent so it, I mean, like I say, it, it's a really interesting question. Which one? Which one you would prefer? I, I really think that Bastianini, it, Bastianini, it has no real fear. He'll grab the bull by the horns. He will really, really sort of, uh, really push this. So I think he'll do actually. Uh, I think he'll do well. Uh, the Aventia team, with the support it now has from uh, Ducati, are actually you know in, in a good position. So yeah, looking forward to seeing him. And as Ruben Josh said a couple of race weekends ago, we are a team of winners. Yeah, and that definitely got quite a few people scratching their heads on the basis of the performances they've had over a numerous seasons in MotoGP. But David, we've been really positive through this podcast so far. We've talked about Petronas Yamaha and the job they've been able to do. We've talked just there about Suzuki and what they've been able to do, the bright future that Ducati has. But we also have to look at the dark side of MotoGP. And unfortunately, once again, the dark side sort of brings us towards Maverick Vinales because this was another weekend where we saw the same old struggles for Vinales. And it's so difficult to not look at Vinales this season and just see what we've seen for pretty much five years in MotoGP. He's got all the talent in the world, but especially when it's as close as it is now, like we've been saying quite a few times through this this show, when it's this close, if you're not quite on it, you're miles off. And unfortunately for Vinales, this was another race where he was miles off. Yeah, he really was. I mean, he said himself that the problem was um, basically the distance between the starting line and the first corner. Um, he said, you know, when you're going through the gears, uh, like first, second, third, the Yamaha can be competitive. He's got plenty of drive. Um, but like fourth and fifth, that's when it starts to run out of steam a little bit. Uh, didn't seem to slow down uh, Valentino Rossi, Franco Morbidelli, Fabio Quartararo, who all got really, really good starts and were uh, only a little bit ahead of him on the grid. Um, uh, but I was talking to... 
Peter Bomb earlier uh, today, and he was saying that riders will often say this. He he actually went back and watched the start again of um, uh, of, of Vinales, and he what he noticed is that Vinales got a bad start. And when you get a bad start on a very long run to the line um, or to the first corner, that's when you really. It, it's a cumulative loss sort of thing. So you're a little bit slow off the line. Um, and then lots of people start coming past you. And the faster, the further down, you know, the, the, the closer you get to the first corner, the more that you're actually losing. Um, just because all of that is, it, it's sort of, it, it's a, a chain reaction from what started off, uh, right off of the line. And that seemed to have happened to, uh, to Vinales. But then we also know that Vinales, once you get ahead of Vinales, he doesn't have a plan B. He can't, um, reinvent himself. He can't find himself. He can't find a, a, a you know a, find a different way. He was really struggling to pass people in front of him. He had to again. He had to wait until people's tires uh, uh, went off. He was saying basically he was cruising uh, for for like fourteen or fifteen laps behind Cal uh, Crutchlow and Alicia Spargo, I think, and maybe Brad Binder later on. And it wasn't until the end of the race when uh, he still had some tire left. <laughs> And they didn't that he could uh, pass them and, and fight his way forward. And it was, I mean, it, to come away with a ninth place place is not bad, really, considering it. But it was an absolute shocker. And Neil, obviously, whenever you hear a factory MotoGP rider that's got the hopes of everyone's chances for the year, where basically if you don't win championships, P45 is going to be handed out at Yamaha. And when you hear that your lead rider, your supposed lead rider, is cruising for two-thirds of a race behind riders that are struggling, are off the pace, is that even more shocking than whenever he said at Mazzano that he was finally working on full fuel tanks? Uh, yeah, I mean, you just... You don't really know where to start with it all. Um, you just have to accept that Maverick's going to say certain things and then possibly contradict himself two or three minutes later. David, maybe you have the quote, but it was, you know, I don't know what the hell's going on. And then about, you know, two minutes later, he said, you know, when you're in this kind of situation and you know that your bike can't pass anyone in the straights, well, you know, you just, uh, you accept the situation and you're quite calm inside. And you're like, well, what is a Maverick? Is it you know, I don't know what's going on and I'm I'm mentally destroyed by this or I'm totally calm and inside, you know, like it's, he contradicts himself and you, you just get the impression that when things are going well, he doesn't really know what the changes are that have gotten there, you know, and it's just, it seems that so much is down to confidence and just peace of mind. And if he does not get that sort of initial jump or he's not, within the top three positions at the at the end of the, the second turn or coming out of the second turn then it's it's just a, you know right off yeah i mean um so i've got the, the quote in front of me and he says um um you arrive from winning and then you do this disaster race and your head is crazy at this moment my head is crazy i don't understand nothing now that is not the quote of a winner that is um generally not good. Dave, just out of curiosity, if you could sit any MotoGP rider down for a Rorschach test on Monday to Saturday and on Sunday, which rider would it be just out of curiosity to see if they see the same thing? <laughs> I mean, it would definitely be Maverick Vinales because, uh, I mean, you would, uh, the thing about a Rorschach test is you, you, you know, you show people these patterns and they tell you what they see and you're supposed to try and um, be able to interpret uh, what they see, what they tell you they see in these patterns, um, and draw conclusions from that. But I think if you sat down, if you sat Maverick down in front of a Rorschach, the, the same Rorschach test every single day, you would get 27 different answers because he seems, I mean, he really is Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Yeah. And I mean, Dave, you and I covered this quite extensively last week in that Maverick is occasionally baffling and just whenever you think it, it can't get any worse, he pulls a good result out of the hat. And then just when you think he's back on the up, there's another disastrous round like Sunday there. I mean, this last three weeks have just been Maverick Vinales in an absolute nutshell. Um, but, you know, um, our colleague Matt Oxley was at um, the Catalonia, the Catalan Grand Prix there, um, managed to bump into him um, leaving the circuit one day and uh, we were talking about Vinales. And, you know, he was just saying that, like, you look at 
someone like Andrea De Vizioso and the the massive strides that he made since he started seeing a sports psychologist. And Vinales has talked about potentially visiting a sports psychologist in the past. And I'm like, I'm not making any judgments on at him on a personal level, but it is clear that when he's making comments like the one you just read out, Dave, wouldn't it be of benefit for him to speak to someone to maybe air his concerns? You know, he, he's a guy that lives in Andorra and you don't get the impression he has the biggest entourage around him does he have a shoulder to cry on does he have someone to talk things through with like you know i'm not really sure and you you kind of think if you're lynn jarvis like why wouldn't you be pushing for maverick to to maybe to speak to someone to work on it because it seems that so much of his feelings can be well mental like you know just basically not being able to deal with either pressure or deal with things changing within a race and yeah it just it kind of it baffles me that that this isn't something that he's pursued because it's been a problem for well as you said steve you know four or five years now yeah it's always interesting whenever you talk to writers about the investment they make in themselves and for some writers it's about oh well i train hard you see it with alicia Spagger, Spagger, uh, you see it with Aleish as being your best example of that, where he's Mr. Million Miles on a Bicycle. And that's his training, that's his investment in himself. And you wonder whether or not he needs someone to actually say, well, that's not the best way to train for being a MotoGP rider. And you can probably tell it's not the best way of training for being a MotoGP rider on the basis of how other riders train and your results relative to them. Aleish is able to extract so much potential from a bike, but how many times do we see him have a needless crash? When you look at other riders, they make a big investment in terms of their nutrition and they make a big step forward. Jack Miller's a good example of that. I remember chatting to Jack in Qatar a couple of years ago and he said that the only time he ever ate salad before he was, you know, probably two and a half years into his MotoGP career, two years into his MotoGP career was whenever he'd have the lettuce on a Big Mac. And then suddenly he made this huge stride by just eating right and looking at all that he was putting into his body and then suddenly he was able to perform for an awful lot longer. Jack was obviously a rider that relied solely on his natural talent whenever he first went into MotoGP and then being Cal Crutchlow's teammate really taught him that actually, you know, Cal's obviously a talented rider but the one thing that Cal is is he's just unbelievably determined to get the most out of himself and that's what taught Jack how to do that and then when you talk to other riders they make a big investment in the mental side and I remember chatting to Alex Lowe's is a good rider in World Superbikes for that because he made a big step in that direction years ago because he went from being the rider that would come in and beat the tank and really be frustrated to realizing well that doesn't help anything it means that by the time you're ready to sit down for your debrief, you've forgotten the important things or you're too frustrated to actually do your job. So being able to have a mental coach makes a big difference. When you look at every sport, you've got it where golfers, basketball players, footballers, anything that's and like that where it comes down to being able to keep a cool head, they all have a mental coach. And it's a big, I think it's a big failing for quite a lot of riders that don't have one. And as David said, Dovi's your example of the ones that can make that big step forward. But David, just when you look at Vinales, we have a question from one of our listeners, David. It's from Chev Chilios. And uh, he's asking, during Maverick's time at Suzuki, was he as complicated as he is now at Yamaha? And obviously, the interesting part from that is, was he this complicated or is it just magnified far more because obviously there's the pressure of being at a much bigger factory? No, I think he's always been this complicated. I mean, you know, throughout his entire career, he, he walks out on his team in, in Moto3. Um, I think it was Malaysia. He walked in, refused to race, went home, spoke to his lawyer, then got back on a plane and flew to Australia where he did ride again. Um, uh, uh, David Abrivio told me that Maverick Vinales' first race on the Suzuki at Qatar, he's, you know, Suzuki's first race in MotoGP, um, uh, or back in MotoGP, uh, Maverick Vinales' first race back in MotoGP. After the race, I think he finished fifth or sixth. He actually had a really, really good race. But he came in afterwards, sat in the pits and cried his eyes out because he'd expected to win. Um, he had 
he believed that he would get on a MotoGP bike and win. Um, now, he's an incredibly talented. Again, this comes back to uh, you know not having a plan. He has this idea that this is the way that things are going to go. And then they don't go um, uh, the, the way that, 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 that he thought. So, yeah, I think he's always been this complicated. But, but right now, you know, we started the season off thinking this is going to be Fabio, Maverick and Mark Marquez. This is what the championship is going to be about. When Mark Marquez crashed out, then it was, you know, Fabio versus Maverick. And Maverick is just up and down. I, you know... Do we think he's going to win in uh, Le Mans? I, I would not be surprised if he wins in Le Mans and then finishes thirteenth again in in Aragon one and wins in Aragon two. It's just that's just he's he's an absolute enigma. But then you would not be surprised if he finished thirteenth in Le Mans. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's just there's just no there's no rhyme nor reason. Neil, just when you look back at Maverick's career, I mentioned there Jack Miller about being a, re- a rider that relied on his talent at one stage earlier in his career. But when you look at Maverick, was he too talented? Because he came in and won two fives and he won at the French Grand Prix, which would have been, what, his fourth or fifth start. Obviously, then you moved to Moto3 and he was immediately fast on a four-stroke. He moved to Moto2 and he won, a, I think, Coda was his first win, which would have been the second round that year. And then, as David said, you know, you jump into MotoGP and he just expected to be able to win straight away. He's able to finish fifth. But is it almost as if maybe he wasn't, not so much that he wasn't pushed enough in the early stages of his career, but he had that little bit of a cushion. And now, when you're up against all the best guys in the world, when the field's as close to, as it is right now, that it just becomes that much harder. Uh, I mean, where to start? Yeah. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a whole succession of things, really. I think it's um, it's not having um, a kind of a group of people around him that can point him in the right direction. Um, it's you have to look at his yeah how he approaches things mentally. Um, it's it's a whole host of things. I mean, we've talked about this so often with Vinales. It's uh, it's a whole host of things. Is does he let the pressure get to himself too much? Uh, does he have a clear understanding of what the bike is doing? Because sometimes he contradicts himself when he's when he's describing how the bike behaves. It's a whole host of things. I mean, yeah, he's so far from being the full package that you know. I think we were all maybe a, a touch guilty of of hyping him up to be back in at the end of 2016, start of 2017, um, that, yeah, and, you know, there hasn't really been any clear progress in the last couple of years, and that's that's the worrying thing, because he's getting to the stage now where he should be approaching his peak, yet he's still so far from the complete package that you really start to wonder whether he's ever going to make it there. Yeah, I don't think it is, like you say, that he has too much talent. He's relied too much on his talent. I, I don't think it's that... Jack Miller relied on his talent and uh, didn't do things which he needed to do. Um, but he, once he realised that he had to do them, then he started to do them. I think Maverick Vinales is different in that he doesn't realise that he needs to do these things. He's, he's, he's missing a key part of being a champion, which is um, uh, that little bit of the, of, of the mental side. But his personality is such that he's he's his own worst enemy he is standing in his own way uh, and he really needs someone to pick him up and give him a good shake um giving a give him a good slap um after every race sit down talking through everything um but he has to be open for that and i think his problem is that he's i'm not i'm not convinced that he's actually open for that because he's so focused he's so totally focused and dedicated on trying to win but he just like he literally can't see the wood for the trees yeah and you say someone to give him a good shake maybe someone to give him a cuddle you do wonder in the current environment that he's in is that you know you you imagine that Esteban Garcia is there who's able to put his arm around him and and basically you know show him some love and and try and be gentle with him and make him believe in himself. But, you know, from the the rest of the MI squad, you know, from management, you wonder, you know, does he does he feel loved in there? And, you know, we've we've talked about it for many years, you know, it's not easy being Valentino Rossi's teammate. Um and, you know, he does seem to be such a sensitive 
character and such a sensitive soul that yeah, you wonder whether that's something that's lacking as well. Yeah, and you can hear from Neil there that he needs a cuddle as well. So uh, <laughs> at, uh, whenever fans are able to come back to races and we're able to have a Paddock Pass podcast meetup, everyone's free to give Neil a hug because me and Dave certainly aren't too keen on doing it. But uh, Dave, we're going to bring a, a close to the uh, Maverick Vinales section of the podcast. And I wanted just to pretty much bring the show to a close. But before we do that, Neil, we, we mentioned quickly there Moto2 and Moto3. Uh, this was another weekend where... In Moto2, we managed to see great battle at the front. We've seen the championship take a big step towards Luca Marini. Neil, I just wanted to ask you a couple of questions about Moto2. It was quite an interesting weekend. Obviously, we talked about the battle at the front, Lowe's and Marini. But one of the things that, for us in our WhatsApp group, that was probably the most interesting thing was we were chatting about Jake Dixon again. And uh, Jake looks like he's genuinely made a step forward now. Yep, yep, he does, yep. Uh, I think we've been at... Well, three tracks now uh, where Jake's been really strong uh, Austria, Misano and, uh, and Barcelona um, and you have to say one of the most impressive things is is that we've gone to Misano, we've gone to Barcelona and these are tracks that uh, most of the Moto2 field know so well from their days in uh, FIM Moto3 Junior World Championship or in Moto3 itself World Championship former days of Moto Two and you know Jake's come to these places for only the second and third time and he's 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 there more or less. I mean he's he's kind of inside the top six. He was on for another top six result there on Sunday. Um and bumped into Jake one of the days leaving the track. He said that he's not doing anything in his opinion, he's not doing anything different from what he was doing last year when he was struggling on the KTM chassis. Um but it's just it's just a confidence thing. He said when things are going bad, they're they're awful, and when things are going good, you're kind of on top of the world. And it's just a yeah, purely confidence thing. It seems with him, and the, even the team have said that they haven't really changed the bike at all in the last couple of races. It's just been go out there. Quite impressed with his tactics at the weekend. Went out, followed Luca Marini for half a session in FP1. Got the lay of the land, saw where Marini was fast, saw where maybe he had to work on, and, and just kind of went from there. And it's good. Yeah, we've got two. English riders now in, in Moto2 that you know are capable of top six results and we, we saw a lot of news as well in the rider market in Moto2 this weekend uh, we did yes um, what did we see yes we saw Tom Lutti uh, out of Dynavolt um, Intact GP yep Tony Arbolino stepping up into there and Tom Lutti going to the uh, 1XOX SAG racing team to, to uh, replace the outgoing Remy Gardner so yeah yeah um interesting moves yeah and uh, it looks like Schroeder is going to stay as well where he is he's been actually talking to a few world superbike teams so good to see that he's been able to stay in the Grand Prix paddock uh, we mentioned how good a day it was for Patronus in MotoGP Jake Dixon in Moto2 not so much in Moto3 though yeah it wasn't yeah it was a disastrous day for uh, for John McPhee um, taking out Albert Arenas up at turn 4 I think that's the second year running that Arenas has been taken out at that corner um, and got to get that inside line. Sure. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But it was, it was, yeah, it was disappointing, really. I mean, McPhee didn't qualify well, but made really good early progress, made his way right through the field, and uh, just yeah, misjudged his braking marker going in there. He was about to clip the back of Tony Arbolino's rear wheel, I think, and um, yeah, yeah, basically took himself down, and then Arenas was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. So uh, it's tough, but it's still wide open with Arenas not scoring any points. I mean, Agura didn't really score many points. McPhee's still right in the battle. And uh, that result also brings Arbolino and Celestino Vietti back into it. So, yeah, five riders you could you could say are still in the, the title hunt for Moto3. Yeah, Moto3 certainly looking pretty good at the moment. And uh, David, we're going to bring the podcast to a close. But obviously, as usual, after a Grand Prix, we have to come up with our winners and losers. So uh, seeing as we've already had a massive Maverick Vinales segment, we should probably just discount Maverick from one of these sections. But uh, David, who's your big winner from the Catalan Grand Prix? Uh, I think my big winner is going to be Juan Mir um, because uh, he his consistency is just putting him really on track for the championship. Uh, like I said, 89 points from five races. If you discount the first race in uh, at Jerez, if you subtract that from uh, from the from the from the championship, if you just look at the the other seven races, um, then he would be leading leading the championship. Um, 
he's just so consistent that I think this was another race when he gets on the podium, when he sees that he's capable of winning. A win is definitely coming. Uh, and I can't see, I mean, apart from Lamar, I think Lamar is going to be interesting to see if they, if Suzuki has the kind of absolute shocker which they had last year. Um, but if they've made a step uh, in competitiveness at Le Mans, then really uh, I think Fabio Quartararo is going to be a little bit too inconsistent to um, uh, actually sort of win this. So, yeah, I, I really think that this could be uh, this could be his... his um, uh, I think this, this was Juan Mir's weekend. And uh, Neil, who's your big winner from the Catalan Grand Prix? Well, it wasn't Jaume Mir's weekend, David. It was Fabio Quartararo's weekend because he won the race. So I'm going to go with Fast Fabio because all the ingredients were there for him to have a bit of a shocker. Uh, it wasn't really going to plan prior to Sunday, but um, but yeah, he he was the fastest guy in that race and he forced his two main pursuers into mistakes. I'm going to go with Takanakagami because... Nakagami's been the butt of so many jokes over the years. He's been the rider that's just been placed there by Honda, a token Japanese rider waiting for the next generation of Japanese riders to come through. He was the right place, right time. And he's shown this year that's not the case. He's shown this year that the rider that flashed lots of potential at times in Moto2 is actually a, a genuine quality MotoGP rider. David, who's your big winner from the Catalan Grand Prix? I think I'm going to have to go with KTM because, um, I mean, like we've talked previously about the KTM and like, is it the best bike on the grid? Yeah, I think the answer to that is yes, as long as we are in just sort of, you know, normal standard motorcycle racing conditions where the weather is not too hot and not too cold. So it's, it's a bit of a Goldilocks bike where it works really, really well when everything is just right. It was too cold. Um, they couldn't really use the tire that they needed. Um, you know, Paul Espargaro had a decent race until he crashed out. Brad Binder had a decent result, but not. It's, it's just not there. And, you know, the hopes are so high now for KTM uh, that we expect them to be at the front all of the time. And they, they just weren't. So, yeah. Thank you very much for listening. Have fun in Manicor, Steve. Um, we shall be watching you and listening to you and looking forward to the show with Gordo, which you'll be recording there. Um, thanks to everyone for listening. Uh, you can follow us on the Twitters at Paddock Pass Pod. You can catch up with us on Facebook at the uh, Paddock Pass Podcast. And make sure you help us out and support us by joining our Patreon, um, patreon.com slash Paddock Pass Podcast. Uh, we have a few uh, rider exclusive, uh, exclusive podcasts there. We have some uh, rider interviews uh, and a couple of uh, exclusive shows. And we have some more. Um, on the cards for that so uh, we'll go there and for a few dollars a month you can support us and get some really interesting content so uh, thanks very much for listening and until next time JB shaking his head in just absolute frustration of why did I even get in this call suddenly he gets to see just how fucking shit the Paddock Pass podcast can be whenever we're completely disorganised